Fires on the Storm. Hello, and welcome to Fireside with the VC. My name is Andrew Romans, and I'm excited to break. We talked a lot about bubbles during COVID. I want to break out of the bubble of Silicon Valley, where I live, and the other bubbles of New York and London, where I spend a lot of my time, and talk to Sammy Abdullah out of Dallas, Texas. Sammy, thanks for joining the pod. Andrew, thank you for having me. So Sammy is the founder of Blossom Street Ventures, and they call themselves the Anti-VC. And I love hearing that. And I love the, I've always hated as an entrepreneur, the lemming mentality of Silicon Valley. And sometimes seeing these ecosystems sprout up in Boulder or even New York, that I think that a lot of New Yorkers were working on projects and technologies and startups that were maybe not in fashion in the Valley. So it's kind of good to see people that are escaping that lemming mentality, but you guys have your own very specific model. Why don't you explain Blossom Ventures and what the anti-VC model means? And I'll just say that Sammy's been doing this for at least seven years, right? You've been, so so you're, this is not a brand new startup yourself. So uh, correct. tell us about your perspective from Dallas and what Blossom is all about. Yeah, thank you. Um, we've kind of evolved over that seven-year period, and so it's we do not have the feel of a typical venture firm. Um, and so, from by that, what I mean is, first, the way we invest, we are not sensitive to ownership. So I don't need to own ten percent or twenty percent or some predetermined amount. I'm sensitive to revenue multiple. So as long as the valuation is fair, uh, I don't care whether I own 20% or 1%, I can get involved. And so that's given us an advantage in certain situations where perhaps a founder has been very cash efficient and just needs to do a small round. All right, well, big boy VC can't do that, right? If he's got to own 10%, 20%, whatever the number is, he needs you to take on a lot of money. Yeah, and if he's investing out of it, if his latest fund is $1.2 billion, um, right. you know, it, it's the equivalent of you and me investing $250, like 250 bucks, and now joining the board that, and taking Sunday morning phone calls. That's what it's like for some of these funds in the Valley to do a $5 million check. Right. And so we can play in certain situations and in certain rounds where larger VC, more traditional VC cannot. That especially applies to cash efficient businesses being grown pragmatically, smartly, uh, that don't need a, a large round. Um, other ways in which we've found that we are different is uh, when I use the word we, it's the royal we. I'm the only employee here. I do all the work. And so I do my own marketing when I reach out to founders with a cold email, that's actually me. Uh, when I get on the phone, I'm not passing anybody off. And so as a result, our process is very fast. We close deals in two weeks, sometimes three weeks. Uh, I do have a committee. I chair that committee, but I decide what goes. I generally know what committee likes. I'm not wrong often. Uh, and so the speed uh, that comes with kind of a single shingle guy as well as the transparency, I'm not interested in wasting my time or filling my pipeline just to show somebody else uh, is, is one thing that I think uh, has 
resonated with a lot of founders, especially when I'm reaching out cold. Um, in regards to cold outreach, it goes the opposite direction as well. Whereas a lot of VC don't want you to come in cold or they want you to, they want you to do the legwork to find a mutual connection, which makes an introduction and vouchers on their behalf. That's not us. My email address is on the website on the front page and in multiple places. I love cold email. So we do encourage founders to reach out. I respond to everybody, um, even if it's a short response. Uh, and so that's uh, you know something else that's kind of made us a, a bit unique. Um, and then finally, I think, you know, we do not have the traditional venture model of we need every deal to have the potential to return the fund. That's not the way we invest. We're not unicorn hunters. We're not good at spotting unicorns. We can't get into unicorn deals anyways, even if we wanted to, because we're small. Uh, so, you know, we're looking for, call it two to three times cash on cash within two to three years. Uh, and if we can print out deals like that, you know, so long as you do that more consistently than you fail, you can have a good life. Uh, and so that is our model. Um, we are not interested in going into high burn, high growth forced models, or I should say forced growth models. Uh, you know, we want founders to take the cash that they need, not much else. Uh, and then just continue running the business as they have been. So uh, for all those reasons, uh, gosh, people think of us as kind of the un-VC, if you will, uh, anti-VC, uh, a little different from what's typically out there. And if you're going for two to three X cash on cash multiples, over what period of time are you going from investment in to divesting out? So we've had six, cash exits in the portfolio. And interestingly enough, those have all happened either within 10 months of investment to four years of investment with the okay. median being two years. So the companies we are investing in, they tend to be series A, series B, sometimes even later than that. Uh, so my year three is maybe the founders year seven or 10. Right. And by then the founder is ready to exit. Um, so it just so happens that, okay, we have been achieving exits within 10 months to four years of investment with the median being two years. So, all right, fine. If we're going to exit things in two years or three years, great. Let's get one X for each year we're in it. And so two to three times cash on cash in two to three years is a wonderful model for us. Yep. And with some LPs, if you just show them their money back, they love you. Um, where other ones are, you know, looking for more specific multiples. If you're getting the two to three X, what percentage of your portfolio companies tend to run out of cash and fail? Or is it too early to tell? You know, because if you're, if you're making, if they're all making a two or three X, that's fine. If yeah. a third are going to zero and a third are hook or crook one X cash back and you had management fee dampening it, you, you, you might want to see more of a 54X in every fund and a couple like four that return all the fund. And now you're happy to get half your money back because it's in carry and you're sending more money to your LPs. What's your, what's your sense on failure rates? We've had two companies die. We've had six companies sell and good outcomes that we were happy with. 
Um, and so we've done much better on the six than we've lost on the two. Uh, and so part of this philosophy uh, or this approach, you're right, does not allow you to have uh, a lot of strikeouts in the portfolio. And so we do have to find founders that have run their businesses cash efficiently, are on a trajectory to profitability or are already there and are not growing, you know, hundreds of percent a year. Gosh, maybe it's a $5 million ARR business growing 50% a year, right? That's very interesting for us. Um, in the public markets, so, there'd be a lot of interest in that. Correct. And so as long as somebody has gotten to, you know, the 2 million, 5 million, 10 million of ARR mark very cash efficiently, okay, great. We can invest in that even if growth is a little bit more modest uh, because we can go to bed at night believing that, you know what, this founder has been very cash efficient to date, uh, you know, is established, has wonderful customers, knows his business. I do not believe he's going to lose our money. Is he going to, he or she, uh, you know, are they going to make two times our money? Yeah, maybe. Are we going to be upset about that? Definitely not. Right. Because we have not designed a portfolio in which we are dependent on big wins to cover losses. Um, that's what we've been doing the past seven years. Ask me if it's worked three years out from now and I'll tell you, but so far so good. Uh, and it, it feels like the strategy is playing out. Well, it sounds good. I mean, six, a couple of exits is always a good thing to keep people interested. And are you over the seven year period, did you raise a fund and it's been one single vehicle or is it multiple vehicles or are you showing deals to your IC and they're in or out on a deal by deal basis? How are you structured? I raise a new fund every year and I deploy it over the following 12 months. So first fund ever was a million dollars. We raised that in 2014 from gosh, not that many LPs. And then this latest fund we closed in April was a $4.6 million fund. Um, and we'll deploy that and call it four deals. So we take very concentrated bets in each fund. We call the capital up front. The cash is sitting in a bank account so that when we've gone through committee and signed the legal docs, we're ready to fund that day. Um, that is something that makes us very anti-VC from the LP perspective uh, in that, all right. But if they know, you're gonna gonna... Deploy, they know you're going to deploy within one year. So um, compared to the capital call model of as the money's being deployed, you're calling it down from your LPs. If you, you, so you, it's impossible for you to sit on money for more than 12 months with your model. Correct. That Correct. also puts a little pressure, a little bit of pressure to say, smoke them if you got them, it's uh, December 31st. Like we're gonna see you in a deal on December 31st, <laughs> you, know, you know, potentially. Um, no, um, and the governor there is our committee. So okay. our committee acts as adult supervision to make sure that I'm not just putting money to the work for the sake of the optionality of the carry. Our committee is investors, in our fund, it's the, uh, you know, it's individuals that have worked with for a while, some of our smartest investors. Uh, and so I need a seven out of eight vote to get anything done. 
you're a single GP, but you need seven out of eight. So basically consensus on voting. And are all the voting people LPs? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, so that's a so, bunch of guys investing their own money, really, in a way. And and you're 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 doing you're the horse. I'm the horse. We have a lot of LPs, a lot. Um, all high net worth individuals accredited. Okay. Um, but yeah, of those individuals, right, only seven plus me, so eight total of us sit on the committee. And I do need committee approval to get something done. But you, you said in the so beginning you, that you're fast, the IC, the investment committee is streamlined. It's, uh, it's got speed. You're doing things in two weeks. Correct. Yeah. So I might, so we do two committee meetings for each deal. So I will push committee in the first week and then push committee again in the second week. Um, if it bleeds into three weeks, fine. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it is when we have something actionable, committee is called on. And Sammy, what percentage of the money that you're managing is from these other eight committee voting members? Um, not much. Uh, gosh. 10%. Okay. All right. So it's not like, okay. I kind of was just guessing that you've got, a wide set of accredited investors in there. And there's eight people that are saying, because I was thinking when I was listening to you explain it, that, you know, it might make it easier to raise money from somebody when you say, listen, Mr. And Mrs. Big, um, you, you have an element of control. You literally have, you just get one other person to veto this thing with you and Congress is ruling in your favor. And therefore, your risk is that you're not doing good shots. And a lot of people tend to overestimate their ability to, to be a venture capitalist in my experience. Yeah, no. So our committee seats have never been for sale, for sale, so to speak, right? It is individuals, which I believe are uh, some of the smartest of our LP base. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of high net worth that make up our fund, a lot. Um, uh, and so, no, no, committee does not dominate the capital. They are just those individuals which, um, over time, I've come to respect a great deal uh, for, you know, acumen and questions and, and, and uh, um, ability to see things that perhaps I'll miss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's you definitely, I think it's, I think in a hits business, it's good to be able to make a decision and not get vetoed, but it's good to have multiple sets of eyes, different networks, different perspectives, different life experiences, different you know knowledge to triangulate and come together. And if nothing else, spot the, 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 the blinking red light that is warning you about something that you can miss. Sometimes there's only so much time in these meetings with the entrepreneur too. And it's like, I, you know, someone says, did you ask him this? And be like, we ran out of time. Couldn't shut the guy up on this. You know, it's just, they're very passionate people you're talking to. Um, right. What about, um, there's advantages and disadvantages to being in the most evolved ecosystem of Silicon Valley or very evolved ecosystems or less involved, evolved. 
with raising LP capital from private individuals that are accredited, geographically, are they mostly concentrated in like Dallas, Chicago, or are they just kind of all over? Is it international? There's heavy concentration in Texas, but yeah, our LP base is all over the place. Um, um, but yes, Dallas and Houston tend to have quite a few. Yeah, because I would think there's a lot of uh, private wealth in Dallas and Houston. And Austin is probably every waitress and waiter thinks they're about to be a VC. And it's similar to the Valley. Like in the Valley, um, on the one hand, it's easy to raise from a bunch of VC-backed founders who understand everything. So if you show them your strategy and it's brilliant, they'll understand it. Whereas if you show it to somebody who's never been involved, they may say, you know, I only invest in Coca-Cola because I love drinking that sugar water. Like, the, you know, and they don't even understand portfolio construction or they think it's risky when it's less risky than the stock market or real estate if done properly. But I would think that if you're the only VC they've met in person and they've been able to meet you multiple times, that it might actually make raising money from accredited retail investors easier than in the Valley where everybody thinks they're a VC and everyone is a VC and you're one of a thousand. What's your perspective on raising capital there versus, you know, in Stanford? Raising capital here is hard. Uh, it's hard. It's very, it's very hard. So, uh, gosh, you know, our AUM across seven years is 26 million, right? Uh, and part of that is for a while, we didn't have the track record. Yeah. Uh, but another part of that is, you know, there is not a ton of appetite for venture in specifically Dallas or even Houston. And that's why when you look at deals done in Houston or Dallas, you know, those are not tier one or even tier two or even tier 10 cities for getting venture deals done. Right. So if you're a founder out here and you're trying to raise capital, there isn't a bunch of guys running around with checks looking for the next great thing in software. They might be looking for the next great thing in real estate or oil and gas. But the returns, you know, I'd say restaurants. I, I, um, I hate seeing people go away from venturing into real estate unless you're enjoying the real estate and living on it. Um, you'll do so much better investing in even a tier two VC that's not even in the top quartile. It, it, it's a matter of patience. And, you know, some Texas, like I've looked at property in Austin and I love Austin, but um, I look at the Zillow of the trading and they say like listed here and never sold. And you see these people can't sell their houses. Whereas at least venture within five to six, seven years, you should start being in the 2X to 3X to 5X region, at least with all the funds we've had. I mean, anyway, I, I think that real estate is guaranteed to not hit a blockbuster, <laughs> if anything. The, the challenge in Texas, I think, outside of Austin, is that the LP base here has not, for the most part, made their money in tech, right? They've made it in real estate and oil and gas restaurants, you know, brick and mortar. So uh, if you're a fund out here, or 
if you're an entrepreneur out here trying to fund your business at the C level, Series A level, it is this is very challenging. Um, uh, and so it's not so much a matter of, hey, my returns are better than you'll do in whatever sector, real estate or whatever it might be. It's a matter of that LP just has a level of comfort with those sectors that he just he or she just does not have in venture. And hence, Houston and Dallas especially are very, very behind when it comes to standing in terms of venture funding for companies or, you know, funds. Hmm. Well, um, when you switch in gears, when you're sourcing deals, I just looked at the deals that you listed on your LinkedIn and I counted 17 that are not on the coasts and 16 that are either East coast or West coast. So more than half or, or, you know, the number of deals that are not on the coast is less than half of the number that are on the coast. How do you source deals? And what's your pitch to say, let me in, because I add value. So like, how do you articulate that you add value and how do you add value to get into those deals and how are you getting them if you live in Texas during a pandemic? Yeah, so if you live in Texas, right, you're not, you know, we're, we're Blossom Street Ventures. We're not tier one, we're not tier two, you know, we're tier 26. No, nobody knows us, right? And we're in the wrong city. So I source deals via cold email. I reach out to founders directly, introduce myself, tell them what we look for, and then go from there. Alternatively, founders can reach out to me, right? My email address is on our website um, and on the blogs we write. So it is a cold outreach strategy. Hence, when you're looking at the portfolio, there isn't 23 investments made in Dallas and Houston. There's three investments made in Dallas, none in Houston, and then 20 investments all over the rest of the country. Yeah. Um, you know, from a value add perspective, I don't try to sell our fund on value. So look, for some of our companies, what I'll tell founders is, hey, for some of our companies, we've been very helpful. Maybe we've built their financial model or we've introduced them to talent or customers. For others of our companies, we haven't been able to do anything, right? And that's the truth. Uh, and I don't know whether or not I'm going to be able to add value for you as a founder uh, until I am in your deal. Uh, and so what we tell guys is, look, set the bar super low, right? Don't expect us to add anything. I'm going to try my best to add value, right? But um, I'm not going to pitch you on, hey, these are all the things I'm going to do for you. And then within one or two months, I've exhausted all my intros. Uh, I don't have any talent for you. Uh, you know, and you sit there and you say, God, this Blossom Street Ventures promises a bunch of things and hasn't delivered on anything. So we set the bar super low, frankly. And we just tell guys, listen, if you want to get out of fundraising quickly and you want us to lead an inside round, great. We can do that. We submit term sheets all the time. If you have a bunch of strategic investors or other investors waiting for an outsider to price the round, good. I'll do that too. If you have a cap table that needs some cleanup, good. I can do that, right? If you are just doing a small round, great. I can do that. So we are solving problems for the founder quickly. Yeah. 
And it's usually a, a problem related to cap table or balance sheet or just general fundraising dynamics. Um, you know, whether it's an inside round or a fast round or a small round or a, a tweener, so to speak, that's our value add. And then once we're in there, great, I'm going to do all I can. But if I can't do anything, please don't be upset at me, right? <laughs> um, so that's, that's the approach. And a lot of guys, I think, find it really refreshing. I was and other guys I, say, I, I... you know, and other guys will say, hey, uh, what do you know about uh, machine learning AI on the blockchain? I'm like, man, I nothing. And so I'm, if you're looking for strategic, it's not awesome, you know. Uh, good luck, right? Uh, put me on the shelf. Reach out to me if you if you need me. Um, so it's a different approach, and some guys find a lot of value in it, and some don't. That's okay. Well, I talk, from my perspective, it's refreshing to talk to somebody that's not overpromising and underdelivering, and just giving the pitch of, you know, using these superlatives of like we are the greatest, <laughs> and, and and they're still. You know, like they're still pitching me like I'm the family office. I'm like, dude, drop it and just be honest with me. So this is actually a very refreshing conversation for me uh, being surrounded by so many, you know, promising the moon in the world. Um, and then um, they forget your name every time they meet you, <laughs> you know, right. So Silicon Vasty, fascinating, you know, guys, you talked about valuation and being sensitive to valuation in multiples. And like, you're, you're not like, owning 1% of Apple computer or Apple is worth more than owning 60% of something you're squeezing the life out of. But what, what is your expectation if a company's got uh, 1 million or, or I think you're saying two to 10 is your typical sweet spot of ARR. Is that right? Two to 20. Two to 20. Okay. So square math, if they have uh, $10 million of top line revenue, what do you, do you expect, are you investing in EBITDA positive companies in some cases, or, or they were cash efficient, so they didn't have a lot of money to be burning, so they're running at growth? Um, the companies we're investing in are either cash burning or very close to profitability or maybe profitable some months, right? But not comfortably profitable. Yeah. But usually, usually they're cash burning. Um, when we're investing in a software business, for instance, generally speaking, we want to be somewhere between four times and six times current ARR on enterprise value. And so as a result, valuation is the number one reason we lose deals. Right? I would imagine. Cause I mean, you're seeing, you know, you're seeing, um, like we, we have a due diligence list of questions that's like try not to be too painful for the entrepreneur, but it's like, it's kind of designed to say, I asked you this question, you told me the answer. If you're lying, I want your lie in writing. I want you to feel the devil on your shoulders when you're saying totally defrauding us here, you know? And one of the mm -hmm. questions which is stupid is to say, what is the multiple of top line sales to the pre-money valuation? And it's our way of saying, I want you to look at this yourself <laughs> you know, mm. of what you're actually asking for. But I would think, what did you say? Four X? What's your top? Four to six. And so most of what we end up doing is six, 5.5, 6.6, right? Um, 
we don't do a lot of fours, frankly. Um, but that, six that's is gonna, generally where we land. Because that's going to box you out of some deals. There's no question. A lot of it. deals. Right. Ton of deals. And, you know, the way, the way I look at it is to say, how much cash runway is this company going to get with this financing? So how many months have we got? And what do we have for revenue? How fragile, how sticky, dependable is that revenue? I'm now speaking to the customers, right? And what is the pipeline? And if we've been tracking the company over a period of line, we're now witnessing the how on plan this pipeline is of like, are, are they, you know, is COVID really elongating the sales cycle or is it accelerating interest, but elongating the cycle? And you start to really understand what do they need to not run out of money, you know? And then, and then when you get this kind of level of understanding, you say, so what would somebody pay for that? So let me see what my exit looks like. And then let me back door my way into what kind of dilution, where do we sit in the liquidation stack? Um, what kind of return am I going to get my 4X or 3X or whatever you're looking for? And how risky is it to get from point A to point B? And if there's a lot of risk, I want to see that multiple be a minimum 10x if I'm early. We tend to think a minimum 4x, a minimum 4x, even if we're investing in what feels like a lock in risk free deal, you know? But anyway, I backdoor my way in and say, um, I look at everything. It's like, if you were working for Goldman Sachs, you're going to do a discounted cash flow. You're going to do like a merge discounted cash flow on the MA. You're going to look at a comparables and make comp sheets. You're going to sanity check it and hit it with a you know monkey bar in 10 different ways and then come to a decision. But I kind of think if when the multiple's nuts, there's got to be a reason that we just turned down an offer to sell the company and it wasn't a take it or leave it we're getting more expensive, they may still buy us, you know? But it's a different way of thinking about it. But I think sometimes the valley, like take Instagram, you know, Instagram, like my wife sometimes wakes up in the morning and in the bed, she's looking at photos on her phone, you know? And it's Facebook. Oh, look at what the Joneses did over the weekend. Why don't we do that? And then, and then if that went to Twitter, she'd wake up in the morning and be looking at Twitter on photos. And so they were ready to buy that, not for a multiple of Instagram's revenue. It was just to put it six feet under and not let it go to Twitter. And then VCs invested in it during the dialogue, seeking a minimum of 4X and just made it more expensive. And it was 1% of the market cap of newly listed Facebook to buy it. So, I mean, that's just a totally different way of, uh, you know, how, was WhatsApp a good acquisition? Was YouTube a good acquisition? You know, these are hard, but I, but listen, man, I think it's really refreshing to see, uh, uh, like a humble, honest, stop lying and bullshitting everybody approach to entrepreneurship and venture capital. And if you're getting into capital efficient deals, um, and you're, you're probably going to bond with entrepreneurs in a way, especially if you're in the Midwest or something where they're like, Hey, that guy telling me the story of, 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 of Facebook doesn't really relate to me, you know. <laughs> so, so I could see I could see you getting along with uh, a bunch of entrepreneurs that want to work with you. And you know, a lot of our guys that we get along with are in Boston or in San Francisco or in New York, right? There is that ilk of 
yeah, there's that ilk of founder that um, has not built a unicorn, but has built a wonderful business. The guy is going to be fabulously wealthy upon exit uh, um, because that person has built the business cash efficiently and has not diluted themselves down to 10%, right? Um, so that founder, that is the person that we are generally attracting or are attracted to and does investing at 6x current ARR knock us out of a lot of deals absolutely yes it is the number one reason that founders are like uh you're you're too cheap you're not market well right? I mean you hear that all the time I mean this is the the advantage of having a, a bigger fund if you're setting the pricing and you're leading the round you can you can say look you go get back to work Stop wasting time talking to these idiot investors. Here's a term sheet. Shop that around and we'll be done. If the deal's being shopped and now it gets to you and it's a 7x multiple of revenue, you know, you're not really in a position to change the terms that's already kind of in cement. It's get on board or don't get on board. That's And, and that, that's a hard part. I think if you guys get to a bigger fund and you have a no-nonsense culture and you say to people, Stop screwing around with this fundraising BS. Sign this doc and we'll be done. And you can fill it in with anybody else you want. We'll take half. Um, you know, you're, you're, the truth is founders worry too much about dilution. Like, it, you know, I've made spreadsheets for founders saying, you're trying to raise at a 40 million pre when you should be raising at a 15 million pre. Everyone's going to want to invest in this at a 15 million pre. And you can choose who adds the most value, actually. Put a ton of network around this deal. What's the point of owning 27% as opposed to owning 24.5%? You just went from like the worst investors to the best investors. And it'd be done like that. And your next round is a guaranteed up. If you went for the highest valuation you could get it away for, you're putting at risk your next round. And you better have 24 months to grow into that you know, valuation. Yeah. So it's a, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking to founders about this. <laughs> you know, um, so in our exits, our six exits for cash, cash exits, um, the revenue multiple has ranged, right? And it's been as low as three times current ARR, actually inside of three times. Uh, one is one was inside of three times current ARR. One was like 15 times forward ARR. But the median of those six exits is 6X. Okay. So on a typical deal, typical software, and we, we talk to bankers. We talk to bankers quite a bit, right? Like I spend part of my day doing that just to understand where the market is. If you talk to a banker, many of the ones that I talk to say, look, when we sell a business that is of size, enterprise value of 100 million plus, it's a five times or six times ARR transaction. And maybe if we're lucky, we get it at eight times, right? So I, as an investor, since I'm investing in businesses that are growing pragmatically, right, but not exponentially, I cannot 
invest at a revenue multiple well outside of where that business could possibly trade when it exits. So in other words, if I believe a business is going to probably trade at six times ARR at the time of exit, if I buy in today at 15 times, I'm in a lot of trouble. That company has yeah. to make up a lot of ground to get me into a return profile that's interesting. And there may, um, be, there may be some big surprises too. You might have a 3X pay-to-play liquidation preference after you invest. There may be... Sure. There's so many things that can happen on how much dilution am I getting between this if I don't have follow-on money and what's the true performance on it. At the end of the day, it's share price and liquidation stacks. But um, Wilson, Sammy, this was really fun. Um, you put your email on your website. So should I put your email up? What, what's the email for people to reach you at? Sammy at blossomstreetventures.com. And Sammy is S-A-M-M-Y. Please, Perfect. yes, put it. Put it on, put it on the, the video. Um, uh, everybody should reach out. I, I welcome it. Okay, man. Listen, I like your model. Look forward to staying in touch and uh, sharing deal flow. Thank you so much for making time. Andrew, thank you for having me. I very much appreciate it. Okay, take care. Bye for now. Bye-bye.